unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this time, dear listeners, we are putting two of our biggest heroes against each other. It is the Battle for Bond, circa 1983. Isn't that right, George? That's correct. I mean, we we love Roger Moore. We've, we've talked about our love for Roger Moore. We also love Sean Connery. But the, like the media 40 years ago, we are pitting them versus each other. Yeah, and what's funny is that we wouldn't have had James Bond without Sean Connery. And for that, we wouldn't have had Roger Moore without Sean Connery. But then again, we wouldn't have had this film from Sean Connery had it not been for Roger Moore. So it's all very cyclical. It's all part of the same thing. But it's all very Bond. James Bond. So... In terms of how we're going to structure this, I think it's agreed, George, this is not going to be the usual. Uh, it's two films, so we'd like to go, um, like to keep it simple. We're not going to be picking apart the act one, two, and three structures too much. I think production chat is probably going to be just talking about generally where were where was Bond production at this point in time. Would that be fair? Well, it's a very long, convoluted story about how we got Never Say Never Again. So I've got the sort of abridged version, and that does go back even before Doctor No. So we will go into that. Hopefully it's not going to be too convoluted. I say there's a lot of legal wranglings, but I've tried to uh, an abridged version. Yeah, Eon have been on our backs trying to stop us doing this podcast episode, but we're going to do it. God damn the it. podcast they <laughs> try to ban. Um, so, yeah, and I think for that reason that we're pitting, obviously, Octopussy against Never Say Never Again or just Never Say Octopussy Again, whatever you want to call it. But chronologically speaking, Octopussy came first. Even that sounds weird. Who came up with this name? What was Fleming thinking? Anyway, <laughs> but due to the story that George has just alluded to, um, everything that the the big backstory that is behind what gave us never say never again we're going to lead with that because as you'll hear where things are at with the roger moore james bond money making machine was at there's a little bit less production chat about that so we're probably going to start off talking about never say never again but we're going to keep, keep comparing it and we're going to cover both films so just prepare to do some what's time it? hopping globe trotting locations um all things James Bond. So, George, have we got the oh, trailers ready? Yes, we have. Sean Connery is James Bond. Agent 007. Never say never again. My name is Bond. Oh, you're Mr. Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an hour. Oh, splendid. Your room or mine. Have you, Mr. Bond? Oh. Ah. 
marvelously well equipped. Thank you, James. So are you. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull round here. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so too. Bond. The game is over. Sean Connery is Ian Fleming's James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Sold. <laughs> there you go. I mean, um, so obviously this is this is a podcast, so you can't see Charlie and I's reactions to that video. But we were doing some serious dad finger dancing to the the slap bass funk guitar on that one. I might have to share some of that video from Zoom <laughs> on our Patreon channel because what was funny was that at the exact same instant George and I started doing slap bass air guitar at the same time because. Uh, it was funky. Um, funky. So, wow. And, uh, and that's the only time we're going to be praising of the Never Say Never Again soundtrack. I was going to send you that, um, which I found on YouTube. There's that track of just, it's Max Goes Mad in the gym. Ah, uh, yes. As I say, this is um, quite a a hearty uh, production chat. Uh, the, there are books written solely about, uh, you know, these the 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 legal wranglings are the the you know the reason behind this film so this goes back all the way back to 1958 i was gonna say how do you summarize this because i tried to explain this to my wife i was like well the thing about never say never again is that it's a remake of thunderbolt which in fact was and after she just gave me that look it's like don't don't continue just yeah just start the movie yeah so uh yeah essentially in the late 50s, the Bond books are, are a big smash. They're very popular. And Ian Fleming is desperate to make more money um, and sell sell them as film rights or as TV rights. To pay rights. for my slaves. <laughs> to pay for, and my house in Jamaica. And all um, that gin and vodka. <laughs> um, and, this, you know, the 80 cigarettes he was smoking a day. Um, so, yeah, he's he's keen to, to uh, you know, basically he was from quite a privileged background, you know, and jokes aside, he was holding out for you know people kept offering him these deals he's like no it's not enough it's not enough these books are popular i want to i want to get more for it so he kept do you know who i am (laughs) i'm um so yeah he's he's trying to shop the rights around and not having much luck but then he's introduced to a guy um an irish film director and producer named kevin mcclory um, by a mutual friend called Ivor Bryce. McClory had read the books and uh, loved the character, but he didn't think the books themselves were cinematic. So when he was chatting about adapting it into a film with Fleming, he suggested creating a fresh new story for it. So Fleming, uh, McClory, their friend Ivor Bryce, and another guy called Ernest Cuneo hashed out various different outlines and treatments uh, with titles ranging from James Bond of the Secret Service, to funnily enough, just being called Spectre. Um, and that'll Fleming, never work. That'll never work. And then Fleming tried to write a screenplay, and but McClory wasn't happy with that. So he brought in a screenwriter called Jack Whittingham. And Jack Whittingham 
brought all those elements into a proper screenplay, but they all sort of, it's all come out that they all contributed different ideas. So McClory was um, a keen uh, diver and swimmer, and that's why he got on with Fleming because um, uh, they both spent time in the Bahamas. And so McClory suggested setting it in the Bahamas, uh, as well as the idea of the world being held to nuclear ransom. Um, Ernest Caneo came up with the idea of underwater battles. And Fleming, McClory and Caneo all uh, claimed to come up with the idea of a criminal organisation known as Spectre and the creation of the character of Blofeld as well. So, yeah, this is all pulled into a... Um, a script by Whittingham, and it's called Longitude 78 West. Fleming's not a, a fan of that title and changes it to Thunderball. So this is when the pieces start falling into place. And whilst Fleming was a fan of that screenplay, he was starting to question McClory's ability to actually make it into a film because McClory had only done sort of art house indie films and he started getting cold feet. Meanwhile. Fleming starts looking elsewhere and lets that collapse. But at the same time, he's working on his next book and he's struggling for ideas. So what does he do? He just takes the idea for Thunderball and turns that into a book. The group idea. The group idea gets it published and doesn't credit anyone else. Um, Says, you know, oh, yeah, here's my next book. So McClory sues Fleming in London's High Court to get publication of the book stopped. So the court case is a drawn-out affair. Ian Fleming ends up having a heart attack during it. He still gets a book published, obviously, but McClory wins the film rights to the book. And now every copy of the book has to be credited as by Ian Fleming based on screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham and Ian Fleming. So... That's this is all in 1961. So this is all going on. But as I say, Fleming's always keen to try and get the best deal. So he finally gets the the, the rest of the books picked up by Saltzman and Broccoli. So Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli from uh, the guys who would form what's known as Eon. Um, so they pick up all the books uh, apart from Casino Royale, which I think Fleming had sold off in an earlier deal. It was made into like a an American TV sort of movie. Yeah, somebody uh, else had the rights for that for a while before they made that movie. Yes, yeah. I, I don't think they got the rights back until it was pretty much just before, I think it was like late 90s or something. So yeah, those rights were sold off for a while. Um, however, because the the story of Thunderball was probably the most, <laughs> ironically, because it started off as a film treatment and a film script, it was the most cinematic of the books. Eon were keen to adapt that, make that as the first Bond film. But because of all the legal wranglings, they were like, no, we, we, we don't want to touch that for now. And so obviously they do Dr. No from Russia with Love and Bond's getting bigger and bigger, getting in more box office, the budget's getting bigger. And then it comes back around and uh, essentially Eon didn't want the Thunderball to fall out of their hands. So they made a deal with Kevin McClory to make it with him. So uh, the actual credits on Thunderball, it's produced by Kevin McClory and Saltzman and Broccoli are credited as executive producers, even though I think in this this fantastic behind-the-scenes book that you, both you and I have read, uh, Some Kind of Hero, it's pretty much straightforward that it was a an Eon Bond production as 
as usual, but I think McClory was kind of like their man in the Bahamas sorting out things. So he was involved. He, he was he, more the executive producer, in fact. Yes, exactly. But Broccoli said at the time, we had the feeling if anyone else came in and made their own Bond film, it would have been bad for our series. So it was like, you know, let's just join up so that doesn't happen. And it happen. would have been, and it would have been McClory because yes. he, he had the ideas. And then obviously he also, I think what gave, really put wind in his sails was the fact that he got Bond and arguably he'd written the, one of the best screenplays and he, he, the fact that Eon wanted it so much gave him confidence. He was like, well, yeah, you've got this worldwide global phenomenon, which is James Bond, but I've got the ace up my sleeve, which I created and you're trying to, you know, so you can see both sides of the story to my point. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of foolhardy to think that Eon were like, okay, well, let's just make this film with McClory and he'll be happy because obviously Thunderball, I think at the time, and I think adjusted for inflation is probably the highest grossing Bond film ever made. I think it even outgrosses um, Skyfall, which made, was made a billion. But I think, yeah, at the time it was the biggest blockbuster of all time. Anticipation, and, I would argue, being built from Goldfinger, a, exactly. a large, a large part. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. not a start. Yeah, it was the Bond phenomenon. Like Bond yeah. in the sixties was an absolute phenomenon, and yeah, I think arguably, yeah, you know, it was you know peak Connery. You know, I, though Connery was was getting a bit jaded by that point, uh, and you know, it was he was getting a bit uh, fed up with all the press attention. And he wasn't getting and paid. He wasn't enough. getting paid enough. He was getting he screwed. Has, you, he yeah. wasn't getting the, the the money that he that he that he deserved. And that's a very good point because that'll come into play as a bargaining chip later on. So yeah, Connery was obviously a, a, a practically a nobody when he got the role of James Bond, but he was the face, and he was he was Bond. He was a reason why people went to see it. And yes, they were amazing productions, but in all by all accounts, it sounded like. Yeah, the Saltzman and Broccoli were constantly driving down costs for all the like casting crew. Uh, they've run a very tight ship and they, they made a killing. But yeah, him as the face and as James Bond didn't get the recognition and financial recognition he deserved. That's the only, that's the only pickle I have with the pair of them, Saltzman and, and, and Broccoli by that extension. I think it's obviously very different these days with uh, Barbara Broccoli and, um, and Michael G. Wilson. Well, but, yeah, well, you look at how involved Daniel Craig is. Yeah, it's completely different. Well, it's it's just the fact that they, I get what they were saying, that they had to run a tight ship, they had to make, but it was the fact that it was the 60s were about Beatles and Bond, that it was all about him and that he was not uh, remunerated appropriately. Like, L- Let's not forget about the other B in the 60s, Charles. It was the Beatles, okay, Bond, the bad, the and, bad dance. and the Bat Dance. Yeah, so, no, but you know, but it was all about him. So, yeah, I think he had a point, is, is the only point mm-hmm. I'm making here. So, Thunderball comes out, big success. But there's a little bit of uh, a dis- like there's a little bit of small print in the legal court case for Kevin Clory that he's got the film rights to Thunderball and he Forever. can and he can remake it every ten years. So jump forward to 1976, McClory announces he's making another original James Bond film. This one's called Warhead. He um brings on uh, Connery. He ropes in Connery by saying, you know, 
I'm going to make you a producer. I'm going to give you all, all whatever you want financially. And I know you've always wanted to, to be a writer. Why don't you help me write it? You know Bond better than anyone. So he completely butters up Connery. And Connery's like, hang on, I haven't had this much, you know, creative freedom before. Yes, I'm on board. So him and the spy author Len Dayton write a script and it just sounds absolutely nuts. It's got robot sharks carrying nukes fly, um, swimming up the New York sewers, Spectre t- like holding New York to ransom, and there's like a big battle on the Statue of Liberty. Um, but ultimately, Some serious big fat spliffs being smoked. Oh, <laughs> absolutely, it's just like robot sharks, and it's just like it sure sounds- nobody's going to watch a film about robot sharks. They will if I'm in a goddamn <laughs> goddamn give the people what they want. Um, but ultimately, it ran into problems with the Broccoli family with with Eon because they basically they had a you know Eon were huge um, you know had a lot of money behind them and with a lot of money a lot of lawyers and lawyers kept pulling apart the script saying this is too much of an original idea this isn't a remake of Thunderball oh, Thunderball it has, it has to, be. to be a remake of Thunderball and stop went- getting Thunderball wrong right, exactly so. <laughs> Count, they went through countless uh, rewrites and scriptwriters, and McClory got bored of of just doing the legal wranglings. Uh, Connery did, and then McClory ends up uh, passing on the rights, leasing the rights to an American TV producer called Jack Schwartzman, who is um, yeah a TV producer, but he's also importantly a former lawyer. <laughs> so. He knows the ins and outs of what's possible, and he manages to get the backing of Warner Brothers to make a get the production uh, budget to remake Thunderball, which ultimately becomes Never Say Never Again in 1983. Um, That's with what Mac- we were talking about, people. So I know we haven't <laughs> lost anybody here. <laughs> with um, McClory credited as an executive producer this time around. So um, speaking of Batman, they bring on the writer of the Batman TV show, Lorenzo Simple Jr. Um, apparently he had done other serious stuff. So he'd also done Three Days of the Condor, as well as Batman TV show, and they wanted something in the middle. Um, but Connery, again, has uh, they win him over again with carte blanche, so he has choice of directors. He His first choice of director doesn't work out. We'll get that in, back to that in Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda. But he picks Irvin Kirshner. Sorry, Irvin Kirshner, fresh off the success oh, of... No. Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Wrong John Williams track. I should have sung yeah. another one. Sorry. Kushner admits he's not the biggest Bond fan, but he wanted he's wanted to do a spy flick. And yes, there there you go. So we are into the sort of there's a lot of um even though they've got Lorenzo Semple uh Jr. to write the script, you've got uh Jack Schwartzman saying no, it has to be a, a faithful remake of Thunderball. Um, there's still loads of problems with the plot. Uh, so Connery and Kirshner bring in a writing duo, Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clements, who they meet at Elstree Studios whilst they're making Alfida's own pet. And because they needed, Con- in Connery's words, they needed to add in some much needed British humour because Lorenzo Simple Jr. is an American writer. But yeah, even, apparently there's rumours that uh, Francis Ford Coppola even did some script work on it because Jack Schwartzman was married to Talia Shire, who is Francis Ford Coppola's sister. 
And uh, I think he's also the father of Jason Schwartzman from all the Wes Anderson movies. And isn't that Talia Films? And Talia Films as well, yes. So the production company is named after his wife. But apparently, reading between the lines, Schwartzman was completely out of his depth being a TV producer and was never on set. And it was a bit of a shambles and a a lot of people reading between the lines saying it was pretty much Connery and Irwin Kirshner uh, running the show and getting everything done. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so what year are we at, George? <laughs> 1983. Okay, so is it is now is now probably a suitable time to talk about what was going on on the other side of the street with Eon, or would you like to keep going on? Next? No, no, let's 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 take a break. Let's take a breather. Um, let's, um, should we play, should we jump over to Octopussy Island and Octopussy's floating island in India and Octopus play the trailer? completely female laden ninjas. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I will. Uh, so meanwhile, in the, the other camp, Eon were making Octopussy. So here is the trailer. From the producers of all the great James Bond films, from Dr. No to For Your Eyes Only. And now, Roger Moore is Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in Octopussy. I'm Octopussy. Let me tease you with a peek at the next and most fabulous Bond of all. is Bond at its best. A spiral of spectacle and thrills. Octopussy tops them all. Roger Moore in his newest James Bond adventure, filling the screen with excitement. Fill her up, please. Oh, I need refilling. What I do for England. What do you mean we haven't got anything apart from the pre-title sequence to use in the trailer? <laughs> Spoil the whole thing, why don't you? Also, have you ever... I've seen... Is it speed ramping or speed cranking, George? Uh, I think you can call it both. I don't know if that was the um, the bandwidth on both of our Zoom call, but I've never seen a love scene speed cranked. <laughs> and I think that was why it was probably that bit's cut out from the film, because it's just like, what's, <laughs> what's going on? Oh, the things I do for England. So we are with, um, I think, I just want to chuck in some first memories here, because we've been talking a lot about Never Say Never Again, uh, we're making that jump over to we're comparing basically Connery yeah. versus Roger Moore, and we all know that Connery was the original, the Bond incarnate. He was the mold. He's come back a couple of times, um, but for growing up for us, we were in the Roger Moore area. 
era. Yeah, obviously uh, we, we we've talked uh, at length. One of our, I think, our first foray into Bond was a view to a kill. Um, am I right in thinking he's made the most? Was it seven? Well, no, there with with this. This is the good pub quiz question because officially, yes, it's Roger, but unofficially they're tied with because of Never Say Never Again. Right, because no, but I think my point is is that when George and I were growing up, we had a lot of VHS, and you know, recently I was telling my son, "Why are you watching Paw Patrol movie for the fourth time for the second time today?" You know, <laughs> and then I remember the time I was sitting on the sofa rewinding the boat chase from Live and Let Die, and our gran Rosa was just going, "You're just watching the same five minutes over and over again, like, Granny. It's the best part." Um, so. You know, it's like, this is the thing that we grew up with Roger. A lot of love for Roger. We love what he's done. There was a, and there was a lot of Roger on telly. because of, Loads yes, of Roger yeah. on telly. And why wouldn't there be? Because he was an amazing person, an amazing man. Like, uh, Con- Connery, all credit to him, was a bit grumpy. Bit of a grumpy Scott. We love him. An amazing thespian. Nobody could do what he does. But Roger, I mean, come on. Sir Roger Moore, Sir Sean Connery both James Bond, but the fact is, it's like, I think what I'm trying to lay down is, this is not, what we're going to be saying about this film has nothing to do with our love of Roger Moore, because this is not his strongest outing. I would argue it's one of his worst octopuses. I'm just going to put that out there so everybody knows where we're at. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's... um... I mean, yeah. It's, and if, it's you want, old... if you want to know how we feel about him when he was too old to do it, check out our episode, was it five or whatever? First year, what we yeah. did, A View, a view uh, to a Kill. As as Roger's tenure goes on, the films do, it is diminishing returns. Like, I think once you hit that peak, and yeah, I think we we agreed when we were ranking the films uh, on our patron specials uh, last year, and I think we talked about the, the peak of Roger was, you know, peaking the high of um, Spy Who Loved Me. And then it just starts getting silly. You have Moonraker and then to cause They tried to reset with For Your Eyes Only. Yeah with, yeah, with For Your Eyes Only, which is probably my third favourite Roger Moore. Um, they, they try and make it sort of semi-serious, which kind of doesn't fit Roger Moore's, you know, humorous, playful James Bond. And this is a kind of a course correction of, oh, no, we've gone too far. We've gone too serious. Let's bring in some of the familiar fun parts back. But, so this, um, this follows For Your Eyes Only? Yes. So For Your yeah. Eyes Only is 81. And, yeah, as I say, as I alluded to... What, what a mess. So they've gone... They, they were kind of a little... To be fair, we do love them. But I think maybe one of the reasons we love the Roger Moores is they're so varied because we've got Live and Let Die. Yeah. Then great, it's Man great. with... Then it's Man with a Golden Gun. Am I right? Very slightly silly. Slightly silly. And yeah. then we go to... Spy Who Loved Me. Spy Who Loved Me. Brilliant. And then right. we go to... Let's just do Spy Who Loved Me, but we're in space. <laughs> in space. Very slightly silly. Seriously silly. And then we've got this correction. Yes, yeah, so we've got Octopussy. Um, I don't know, George. How do we tie this in? This was the Battle of Bonds. So, so let's the, talk it, about where Eon was because we spent a lot of time talking about them, about how we got Never Say Never Again. What was going on at Eon to give us this? So the Eon thing, it's pretty much, I say, they were getting into that. They were still very good at churning a Bond film out pretty much every couple of years. So, 
yeah, as I say, uh, Fewer Eyes Only was was 81. I think Moonraker was 79. Spy Love Me, 77. So they were very, pretty much like clockwork. And it was one of those things that any ideas that fell on the cutting room floor, any, oh, we'll just put them in the next one. And I'll I'll get onto that in a bit. But behind the scenes at Eon, so um, I think Spy Who Loved Me was the first, uh, I think, a, a Cubby Broccoli only production. So I think Harry Saltzman had sold up. Uh, his share of Eon and had moved on. Um, but yeah, obviously um, Spy Who Loved Me was huge. Moonraker was huge. I think Fiore's Only was a good hit. I don't think it was as successful as the last two films, but it was still good numbers. But the interesting thing, I think uh, Roger Moore had signed up, I think initially for three films. So every time it was a will he won't be sort of a rolling contract. And obviously, Roger was no spring chicken. I think he's three years older than Connery. So he kept umming and ahhing. And he was, Roger was playing the game, even though he was good friends and he would play. I think they played backgammon. He played backgammon with uh, Broccoli, like just socially. Um, Cubby, it's my agent. This damn agent's Cubby. It's it's (laughs) not me. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you want to do another one, you're going to need to add on a few more zeros, Cubby. Um, And yeah, that was it. It was just sort of like, oh, uh, Roger kept umming and ahhing, and the press kept asking, are you coming back to do more? Would I do another one? You'll have to ask Cubby Broccoli. Um, And basically the the studio was going so they at the time universal uh, sorry united artists um owned the film rights to the distribution rights for bond but they uh i think around the 1981-82 they were bought by mgm and so that was it was the in, in broccoli's eyes was like well i'm going to keep doing my thing but the studio there was a bit of pressure especially with Kevin McClory making a big splash and Jack Swanson saying, yeah, we're making our own Bond film and we've got the original James Bond. MGM started getting a bit nervous and saying, well, as much as we, you know, like you to start afresh and they were actively looking for a new Bond. So there was, we'll get into that and could have, would have, should have, but there was various famous up and coming actors screen tested. But at the end of the day, they ultimately were like, well, if we want this to be a success and to go up against a rival Bond film, we're going to need to stick with Roger Moore. So they went back to Roger with with his financial needs <laughs> sated and brought him back for for one more go around the James Bond thing. But as we would know, that would happen again with a view to a kill. Um, in terms of the production itself, it was, I'd say, pretty smooth sailing. There, there's not much production hassle outside of that i say um mgm united artists thing and the will they won't they recast bond yet again but they decide to to play it safe with roger because this was directed by john glenn who because i think that's what i'd say from a production viewpoint what i picked up reading that great book was the fact that uh, John Glenn put together kind of like a Bond team, project team. So, he, and I think that's carried through in these films that they, and I think it's Octopussy's downfall that they got overconfident. They're like, well, and they, it's this, it's this, this weird issue that I have with Octopussy. Everything's done in a Bond way. 
like everything is like the stunts, the props, the location, the effects, the the lines, the dialogue, the performance, the running time, the costumes, everything. But the film itself is not it's. Is it the plot that that, that annoys me? That it's yeah, jewel yeah, it, smuggler and a circus and a just. I, I mean, t- to be fair, you could, and I was thinking about this. You could apply that. So, yeah, uh, jumping back to John Glenn. John Glenn, I think he started off as an editor on the Bond films, yeah, he got and promoted then over and then the years. He, yeah, promoted over the years, and he directed every Bond film in the eighties. So he did from Fury Eyes Only all the way to Dalton's License to Kill. And yeah, he's and a he's pheno- good. He's, he's a great. phenomenal action director, as as you and I both agree. But yeah, I think I think with this, and I think with all the Bond films, it, especially in the eighties, it seems like the the scripts get more and more convoluted. So yeah, this one, the plot's all over the place. Yeah, as you say, you've got circus, you've got octopuses, uh, there's jewel smuggling, there's a nuclear bomb. There's nuclear bombs like dropped on your lap in the 11th hour and like not even even octopus is like i had no idea that he had nuclear bomb and everyone else is like neither did we we didn't even yeah. see it coming it wasn't foreshadowed at all you've got louis jordan is it a fake is it not a fake you've got stephen burkoff yeah they're both of them acting to the max uh, but you could you could apply that to i think you know living uh living daylights i love that film but it's a very convoluted plot that again, it's like, oh, we're buying heroin and then I only buying know guns. The plot backwards because we love that film. We've watched it so many. But as you say, it's like, so there's a guy who has guns and he's going to buy some heroin to sell it to some guys in Afghanistan and they're going to flood the market in the US. It's so convoluted. Yeah. And, it, and it's like, and it, it's all about a Russian defector. And yeah, it just, they, some of them in the 80s just get so convoluted. And I think that's it with this. It starts off, as you say, very strong. The the cold open and this, the wow. pre, pre-titles credits. And this is the thing that I remember growing up. I remember watching that and going, this is so cool. I mean, it's... it's we used um, to turn it off when the credits rolled. Honestly, George, we always used to. I mean, it's it's uh, it's ingrained in something. You'll laugh about this, but it's ingrained. Something I'm I love reversible clothing because of this film. Yes, that, yes. That there's a thing where he gets out and he's like he turns his farmer jacket and he's in, you know, and the cap miraculously turns into a very stiff military cap. Nobody talked about this when Rogue Nation came out. That's all I'm saying. No, no, it was Ghost Protocol. Nobody yeah. talked about this when Tom Cruise did it. I was like, it's from fucking Octopussy. It's yeah, I, I I love, and that's it. When growing up, whenever I saw a reversible jacket, it's like, I need to have that. I just never know when I'm going to need to change. <laughs> you and your fancy dress. Exactly. Um, it's got all the um, the the typical Bond sounds in terms yeah, of like... and soundtracks and everything. And and you've got the, jo- and- you know, John Barry soundtrack. It's Yeah, it's a phenomenal uh, opening sequence. And then, yeah, it's it's kind of just all over the place from there you've got classic uh well every bond does it but roger moore was best at bond know-it-all ah fabache x there by carl fabache <laughs> it's just like how do you know all this? that that's where it goes a bit off the charts because you've got like to take it back to um i think it's you only live twice it's like 007 are you familiar with locks locks it's a type of fat actually I think it also means liquid 
liquid oxygen. oxygen nitrogen used in rocket fuel if i believe and it's like something you're like okay but this is ridiculous how the fuck would he know that much detail about <laughs> um and roger is on full uh full sleaze alert uh the eyebrow racing sleaze well, alert there's a lot of ladies here as well he will do anything to anything. I was thinking this, sorry, just to cut the two films together, but wherever you are, Cassette Boy, there is an amazing mashup to be done Both in both of these films. There's where Roger turns up to the, the amazing hotel in Delhi or wherever it is in India, which is just like knee deep in, in hot women in in. Skin, no, no blokes around <laughs> no blokes blokes are not allowed we're not even on octopus's island yet there's that and there's a similar scene for sean connery and it's almost like they were talking to the groups were talking to each other he does the same thing happens in never say never again he turns up is it in monte carlo oh is that when he else? goes to the, the spa you know it's i think it's maybe it's just, yeah and we take care of gentlemen very well yeah. mr we we serve men very well mr bond uh, and he's like, you're too old for me, even though she's younger than him. Uh, he gives her that look. But it's the fact that they've got this thing going on and, and Roger is on full sleaze, full sleaze oh. maneuvers. I mean, can I, we I... just talk about the, 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 there's one thing I want to talk about in the pre-title sequence. The bit when he's been captured. Yes. And he's on the truck. Yes. Uh, before he does the, the Bondian thing with the parachute things, which is cool as fuck. Love that. Love that to bits. The the double eyebrow raise. Where, where he's the, like, the, go on, have a look. This no, the thing is, the thing is, it's so pimping. It's like I feel like he's pimping out the movie, and I feel like the the rest of this film is basically whenever your your concentration or your attention is wavering, he's looking at you like that, going, "It's it's a bond. Look, 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 you like this is what you like, isn't it? This is what you want. Look." It's a stupid film, Roger. <laughs> uh, and I think that's uh, something uh, I will need to say at some point, but very interesting. I think Never Say Never Again had a, a bigger budget. I think that was like like 35, and I think this was 25 million. And it's amazing to show that Never Say Never Again does admittedly look like a TV movie, and, <laughs> and, the, and the action sequences are a bit lacklustre, whereas this... It's so polished. As I say, we've talked about how good John Glenn's action scenes are. And it's, you know, it's typical. They've obviously got that core Bond team. They know what they're doing. Whereas it seems like the Never Say Never Again guys are scrambling like, oh, get get some more writers. And this doesn't make sense. Make write a scene to to link those bits. Have we really only got BBC computers to work with? You know, the noise of those rockets trying to find their targets. (laughs) But yeah, whereas that that pre-title sequence with Roger in the plane. Obviously it's not him, but the, the cover, the footage of that plane curving mm. the, the mountainside of some former South American country, or maybe somewhere in, in South of England. We're not quite sure. Uh, uh, put in some palm put, trees. Put in some palm trees <laughs> in, in Buckinghamshire. No one will ever know. Lay down some sand. That is what uh, reeked f- through for me was the fact that the production value, that's what's higher in Octopussy. But yeah. that's the only thing. <laughs> Yeah, and that's it. You know, you've got some, you've got some good bits in it. There is um, uh, Louis Jordan, who seems 
he's, <laughs> oh he God. seems he's, he's a little bit his uh, lips from eating all the scenery <laughs> but he seems uh, he can't bring himself to say octopusy properly he just says it very quickly he's like octopusy <laughs> yeah yeah honestly why did we not see him in more films he is so harmy he's he is the bad guy in this as well I, because I it's think... not really octov whatever the beverly hills cop oh, guy um, um stephen burkoff it's yeah. not re- he's not he's just a bit crazy and he gets shot in a really shitty way chasing a train well again it's like the brad whitaker thing it's like who is the bad guy yeah it is it is louis jordan but sort of like what's his motivation is it just jewels is it the money but yeah louis jordan is so camp and hamming up and apparently him and roger were were known each other for years so they do have good chemistry that scene where they're playing with the loaded dice i can almost feel him going and, and like the, sound, lips, the sound, the of, sound of, of the, 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 the dice—it's it gets into your eardrums, doesn't it? And it's like because like everything's so soft and smooth, like uh, yeah. like like Bailey's. Basically, <laughs> it's sort of like maybe I could take your loaded dice. That everything sounds like a pop. Play, Mister Bond. You need a great deal of luck to get out of this. Oh, luck! But then I shall use player's privilege and use your lucky dice it's all in the wrist and uh, there is i mean both of these films have some racial stereotyping um this ought to keep you in curry for a few weeks uh, <laughs> um i was just like oh. <laughs> it sounded good at the time um, but yes, obviously, the Never Say Never Again has the slave auction selling off Kim Basinger to those filthy Arabs. I don't know what's worse about that or the whole, should we talk about the tennis incident in uh, Octopussy? Oh, tennis so, player? Uh, hiring the, is it VJ, the, 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 the tennis, tennis player? Yeah. Tennis player in real con- life. That was, that was a contract thing, wasn't it? Yeah, something about getting... Yeah. Didn't want to have to hire a real Indian, so we've no. got a tennis pro who's based in the UK. And yeah. as long as he, as long as they wove, as long as they'd woven in tennis into the script somehow, somehow it'll be fine. Yeah, so that's why he's got a racket and he's hitting, he's hitting people with his tennis racket. Yeah, so as I say, just dipping in some production chat, there's um, various elements that not been used in previous Bond films. So um, the knife throwing twins apparently was supposed to be used in Moonraker. I think Louis Jordan was originally going to be the villain in Moonraker and I had to drop out, as well as the uh, scene at the end with the plane. Uh, actually, no, the, I think it might be the, um, the, the cold open. That was also going to be a, a sequence for, for Moonraker. Um, and the backgammon game with the loaded dice was originally going to be a scene in the spy who loved me. So lots of, um, recycling. Um, I watched this with my wife and she was laughing uh, at the film, not with the film, with Roger's quick costume chains in the last half hour when he gets into a gorilla suit very quickly and out of a gorilla suit very quickly and then manages to do some very professional clown makeup. In under the clown 50. makeup thing takes you out of the film. The gorilla makeup, you're like, well, I guess he just crawled into the back. It was, And then he gets out of it very quickly. The clown makeup is jarring. The whole circus thing is just annoying. Uh, the, there would have been other ways to play. I say we've got, there's a lot of problems with the plot, but just to move things along, let's compare things together. Okay. So, okay. Pussy, we're agreed, not much plot. Um, never seen ever again. Well, we're pretty much boring. I've tried and tested. Oh, what the hell? Let's just, uh, let's just steal some warheads and hold the world to ransom, huh? Uh, you know, I mean, Dr. Evil, 
he hit the he hit the nail on the head that this was common in a lot of not necessarily Bond films but spy films. This is this is a well used trope. Yeah, it seems. I mean, as you I'm say, holding we... this against Never Say Never Again, not Thunderball. When they did it in Thunderball, it was new. It was the fact that this shows McClory's need to remake Thunderball because did the world need another? Because that's what Louise said. Uh, sorry, my wife said. This seems like a very old idea, even for 1983. Yeah. The plot. I'm, and to be fair, I mean, the, that's what Bond films are great, great at. It's just like, let's just rehash. You know, it's like the same that Fiori's uh, only was basically a remake of uh, From Russia With Love. Let's get the decoding machine. Let's steal that yeah. again. And Spy Who Loved Me and, and uh, You Only Live Twice. Yeah, exactly. And and even, you know, uh, Spy Who Loved... Uh, yeah, and Spy Who Loved Me is also... Uh, the villain's plot of, oh, I want to create a world underwater. And then the next one we make, I want to create a world in space, a yeah. perfect utopia. So, yeah, it's recycling, rehashing. But, yeah, stealing the nukes, as you say, it's, um, it's so even Austin Powers makes a joke of it. But the only truly original one was main strike. <laughs> yeah, main strike. <laughs> Wiping out all those microchips that aren't made in Silicon Valley. Oh, I just love it. It's, it's Walken. It's Walken, baby. It's Walken, baby. Well, let's, let's not get into Walken territory again. So, George, we talked about how we don't really like a lot about the plot in uh, Octopussy. We're not even sure who the villain is. Speaking of villains, let's take it back to Never Say Never Again, because we talked about we've, we've covered Bond in a few specials on our Patreon. We're big fans of Bond. And I'd have to say that Maximilian Largo is one of our favorite villains of all time, not just in Bond. Absolutely. And that's one of my, my main arguments because I, I never say never again gets a lot of shit from, from most Bond fans. A lot of people see it as, yeah, it's a, a cheap, inferior sort of knockoff type thing. But I would, one of my main arguments is, it's the villains of the piece. You've got, um, is it Klaus Maria Brandau, who's a, an Austrian actor, uh, as fantastically unhinged as, as Max Largo. And you've also got the amazing uh, Barbara, is it Barbara Carrera as the Fatima Blush? Yes. James Bond, James Secret Service. My first, my first, your first love. Double oh seven. Um, who's, Hamier, yeah. who's Hamier? I mean, those are just having a the, great time. Well, that's it. The, those two are going fully nuts. And I think um, Connery picked uh, Brandauer as a villain because he said he was one of, I think he quoted saying, one of the most Europe's most interesting actors. And he clearly is. He's clearly unhinged. I love there's that when Kim Parsons is like, you're crazy. And he goes, uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this back in the day when we talked, uh, back in the day, when we when we talked about A View to a Kill, I was, I was waxing lyrical about our favourite um, Christopher. Mr. Walken saying about he really sold the crazy as yeah. his role. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, like uh, psychopath, damn right. You know, yeah. <laughs> and that's what that's hard to do. I think it's um, anyone can go like you know Jim Carrey, throw themselves around the room type sort of thing, but unhinged this sort of dual personality. His eyes, the way that he looks, the way that Largo looks at you, and he's just like, and the, the thing he does with his hands. He's always like, don't talk, don't yeah. talk. And even the bit when they play that computer game and he's like, whoo, whoo, everything about him, you're like, 
does he know he's in a James Bond film? I'm not sure. And, <laughs> and the thing, the interesting thing is, and we were talking about this when we were ranking uh, the Bond villains on our Patreon specials, is that we're talking about some of the worst villains is, um, is Math- Math- Matthew Ulmerich from Quantum of Solace. Like he's really, he's just not a physical threat to James Bond. And yes, he's, he's trying to be a little bit crazy at the end, but this guy, Brandauer as Max Vargo isn't really a, a, a physical match to Connery, it's but he's so, terrifying. he's so <laughs> unpredictable. You just don't know what he's going to do. And the fact that he's just so jittery and there's like, uh, uh, you know, like, Oh, you smashed. It's priceless, but I dropped it. Isn't that crazy? And he's it's just nuts. The thing is, every single thing he says, every single scene he's in, there's a bit towards the end where they're loading the the nukes, right? And yeah. he just goes, there's a guy drop. Watch the tension. And it's just <laughs> the way he delivers it is because he's smiling at one side and then he sees what they're doing and he just completely flips and goes, sky drop. And like, yeah. you see the like, he, the guy is either, I mean, he is clearly an acclaimed actor, but like, the, the fact that he just switches is just he really does inhibit a completely a complete lunatic and it is one of the jumping back to the original thunderbolt it's one thing that's an improvement at that uh, um, the, what, a, a mafia boss yeah like there's that. adolfo celli the switch on under what that thing like um <laughs> he is just not he's he's just going through the motions of ah kill kill bond now and he's not, <laughs> it's he's, a sign of the times that he's the mafia guy he's the mafia yeah. mob he's the mob boss yeah he's he's, a, we got away a deal with you but he's yeah he's very He's just very unmemorable in in the Bond villains, apart from the eye patch. Whereas this guy, you know, Brandauer doesn't need anything. He's just an ordinary bloke that just happens to be completely nuts, a bit camp, and very psychotic. <laughs> but yeah, um, that whole let's make it hot and modern. Let's have them playing instead of a stuffy old card game. Let's have them playing a video game for, voiced by a Cylon. This game has one objective: power. We will be fighting for countries chosen at random by the machine. But for this demonstration, I will choose France. Target areas will light up on the map. Whoever hits them first with his laser beam will score a point. But there's another way to win. With your left hand, you control two nuclear missiles. With your right hand, you control a shield to block my missiles. But if you fail, boom, I win the game. You will be red. I will be blue. Are you ready? Yes. Begin. Really weird video game. And just that whole Monte Carlo casino sequence to talk about. Um, I guess it was style at the time, but Kim Basinger, Bassinger, Basinger. I think it's Basinger. I think it's Basinger. Uh, her, even though our entire lives we called the Kim Bassinger, uh, her hair is doing interesting things in this scene, and I just thought, oh my god, how far have we gone in the James Bond legacy? When if you imagine in Doctor No, he's holding the shoe, he's got the cigarette, and he says Bond, James Bond, the way only Connery yeah. could say it. We've gone from that to him popping out behind an arcade machine, going Bond, James Bond. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> we really have gone downhill. The fact that he's some like weird, creepy guy that's hiding behind an arcade machine that she just wants to play on. But yes, yeah, so we've got this game, which to this day I think 
half the budget went into this freaking game. This game is such a weird game. It's got electric shocks. It's, it's got, got nukes. It's shields. It's <laughs> your holographs. It's complete nonsense. But yes, it's. I'd pay, uh, pay money to play it though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm surprised no one's actually tried to make it already. Elon uh, Musk, he listens to this podcast. It's only a matter of time. He's probably as unhinged as Largo, um, allegedly. But uh, we, I don't want to get away from too far away from that scene to drop in my favorite line of this film that's so completely like unrealistic when they're doing the tango. Your brother's dead. Keep dancing. <laughs> Keep dancing. It just made me think of that Key and Peele thing. Keep exactly. Dancing. Keep because dancing. Big smiles. Big smiles. Big, big smiles. Big smiles. Keep dancing. Your brother was a mark. And she's like, what's this got to do? Yeah, that is, uh, well, let's do a tango. It's, it's, it's on one side, it's like, so I need to talk to her. I'll, I'll trade it all just for one dance with Domino. Um, yeah. I get that. He's like, he's got to speak to her. He's got to turn her because she's her way in. It's mm. the typical Bond trope. I get that. But you're right. This fact that he's like laying out and she's like, your brother's dead, but keep yeah. dancing with okay. me well. in front of all of these people. <laughs> don't, whatever you do, don't react. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then he comes in at the end and grabs her like a complete psycho as well. It's just like. Um, yes. Um, but yeah, I'd say, the again, the one thing that this film is an improvement on in um, versus Thunderball is the one thing that we joked about, I think we were chatting about <clears throat> pre-recording, is how slow and tedious the underwater scenes are in the original Thunderball. Whereas at least in this, they take most of the action out of the water and put it in this random cave thing. And it makes it a bit more typical Bond film with gunfights and grenades and stuff like that. The tears of Allah. <laughs> of Allah. We love we love that growing up. And uh, something I want to say, you know, just bring this back to first memories. I watched this film and beat for beat, my muscle music memory was kicking in. I know. Let's talk about that for a second. Soundtracks. So you're talking oh. about... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got a saxophone. So apart from the terrible saxophone that won't leave us alone, he's like a ninja in the bushes, that saxophone. Oh, we're underwater. It's it's everywhere, but the rest of the time, I thought the whole when they're loading the nukes, just that stealing face. Dun, 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 dun. It sticks in your head, and considering they weren't allowed to use any of the original Bond soundtrack or or notes or anything, I think they do a pretty good job for the Bondy stuff. Just a little bit too much sax. Oh god, I've I've just yeah. One of my notes is just the music ruins so many good action scenes. So there, there's the bit on the bike. I think that has like some some jazz jazz sax sort of, um, and yeah, we we have to talk about their version of the cold open where he's on this training exercise, and you've got the dire never say never again, which is yeah, da 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 da, and apparently that was even um, they had done another version of a song called Never Say Never Again, sung by uh, Lanny Hall, but Michael Legrand, who's the um, the composer was like, well, no, you're not writing. If I'm doing the soundtrack, I've got to do the title track. So he did his version, which is played over the opening credits. And that um, opening credit sequence was a reshoot. Apparently, originally, the cold open was going to be like this medieval jousting thing. And it was only yeah, at the end, the, 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 the face mask is revealed and it's Connery. And it was Ian Lafrene, um said, well, 
this is, film's all about Sean Connery. Why are you hiding him behind a night's mask? You, why don't make it a training exercise? And they're like, oh, well, we're filming in the Bahamas, so let's just film something there. And even he says it was a brilliant sequence until they put an awful song on top of it. That's our mission, George. We need to start recutting this film with different music. But... Well, they, as you said um, we'll have to put it in the in the uh, show notes that it, somebody has put over the jo- some John Barry music over that opening, and it's ten times better. I have, I wasn't aware of that. I'd love to watch that. Yes, yeah, so someone's yeah. rescored it with with typical Bond's songs. I did like Max von Sydow. Is that his name? Such Blame. a good Blofeld. Such a good... Uh, the fact that he gives such a caring... Um, such a lover of cats. He gives all of the camera time to the cat. <laughs> but it's the one. cat, you see. Yeah. We have... Yeah, he, it's he's... his uh, voice. It's his voice. It's like... No, you know, uh, he's, he's a fantastic... Obviously, you know, he's... Uh, an amazing actor that's been well, you know, for over many decades and been in some amazing films. So yeah, it's great to see him crop up in a blink and you miss it sort of cameo. But yes, uh, j- jumping back, some love for Barbara Carrera's Fatima Blush. She is oh my god, beautiful, hot, and nuts. <laughs> She's definitely on the hot and crazy scale because, like, um, you wouldn't you write your memoir right. Write them now. Um, and she's dressed like a, a futuristic pirate prostitute as well in that scene. <laughs> that scene is so amazing. It's like the things that they would have had to do to make it happen. Like who's shutting the gates on Bond when he's trying to get out of that? Anyway, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about that. The bike chase is great. He's got three buttons and he presses all of them and every single one of them <laughs> gets him out of the scenario that he's in. What I love about this is the fact that it just it brings it all together. It's like, well, you know, the problem with all of the Bond films was we used to, they became too obsessed. The problem Connery had with the films is they became too obsessed around these gadgets that would be reverse engineered. They'd only be used in circumstances where he'd need them. And this would continue throughout all the Bond films. Avalanche jacket, anybody from yep. The World Is Not Enough to all the things that it's just, but what I love about this is that I'm just pushing the button. So just, I'm going to push the button, and whatever button I push does whatever I need to do we'll, to we'll get do out something. of the scenario. <laughs> we'll do something. Very Night Rider, kill, uh, oh. kid, I'm in a tight spot, well, kill was it? everybody. Well, there was the uh, the night, inferior Night Rider, wasn't it Street Hawk? Where they get, it was Street basically Hawk, night, yeah, night Rider yeah. on a bike. I did like that bike sequence. I just... I think what I, I keep going back to the film that George, you and I have watched this film a lot. So too much, good or, some good or bad. I want to say, in our defence, did I think we had the original video of this? This wasn't a recorded off TV. I think it was. I think it was an ITV. Like, like all, like all the rest. Yeah. Okay. I just feel like we watched this a lot, but was it because we just loved Connery? To be fair, modern. There's... It was modern Connery. That was it, the hit it, we were looking I... for. And and it, yeah, it's modern Connery. It's not no, like it was stuffy. Max. It was all about Max. <laughs> it was not those stuffy ye old Bond films. And it had like I suppose the the fight in the gym with um one everyone's of the best favorite, fights. Yeah, everyone's favorite stuntman Pat Roach. Is you he know, the that, guy from uh, Indiana Jones? Uh, Red yes. is Lost Ark on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Wow. and well, he's he's in all the Indiana Joneses. He's always the big henchman. Or I don't think he has much of a role in Last Crusade, but he's also the big Indian henchman. In Last Crusade as well. Do they black? Uh, sorry, him up? In, 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 <laughs> they did black him up in sorry in Temple of Doom. But yes, that's a great fight, and I love that when they're having like they're being like having he's being punched around whilst all the old fogies are watching the boxing on the telly. Yeah, 
I was just it was boxing or football this time. I was like, are they actually watching boxing? Because we always remember it that way. Yeah. But yeah, a great fight. How much stuff they sugar glass was a big thing. Well, we can oh, basically so so, so much glass in that. So scene. much glass is broken. Um, no snakes were harmed in making this film. Um, Con- uh, Connery's got some very comfortable leisure wear that <laughs> that Roger would go on to borrow for a few to a kill. <laughs> Granddad taking it, back, suits. taking it back to Octopussy, what is Roger wearing? I mean, before he changes into the general, he's dressed like a proper horsey set, isn't he? Oh, he is. Well, it goes it goes with the cover, Charlie. I'm the, undercover. The... But yes, I mean, Roger's definitely looking a bit tired in in Octopussy, and he would go. I think I don't. I, I can't remember whether he had the facelift before this or if you to kill, where he looks completely surprised <laughs> all the time. I think it's view a kill where it really hits home, and his uh, hair keeps he, getting lighter and lighter. I think to 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 hide the grey, maybe. But he's just so such a beautiful person. Um, I mean, that's a it. lot of fun to be around. But that's probably it. We're, more we're, probably more so than Connery. Yeah, no, no, I think Connery was obviously doing a lot of graft behind the scenes on Never Say Never Again, and yeah, it's worth. Definitely worth checking. If you're a Bond fan, checking out this book, Some Kind of Hero. And also there's another book. If you if you want to hear more about the background of Thunderball and Never Seen Ever Again, The the Battle for Bond uh, is, is a great book as well. We'll put links in the show notes. But I've also uh, got a copy here, so just pop over if you want to give it a read. <laughs> exactly. And listeners, you know. Wrapping things up. It's yeah, I think Octopussy is definitely one of my least. It's definitely my least favorite Roger film. I have issues with uh, Moonraker. I have issues with Man with the Golden Gun. But I just feel this one is just dull. There's just not much there. There's not much story to it. There's not much to to really to come back to. So yeah, it's definitely my least favorite Roger, and probably one of my least favorite Bond films. Whereas, yeah, never say never again. It's Connery's having fun. Connery's in great shape. He's definitely in better shape in this than he is in Diamonds. Well, yeah, don't make me climb that building. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got some great, um, you know, some of the the dialogue, fr- the, the punch ups from Ian Lafrenet and uh, and Dick Clements. You know, oh, you're all wet. But my martini's still dry. One of my uh, favorite lines, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also that we made the right decision about what? Your place or mine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and it's um the there was just one girl in Philadelphia. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> um yeah, it's it's got some great lines, it's got some great performances. But yeah, uh, ultimately, it's very cheap looking. It is a bit like a TV movie at times that it just doesn't have that eon polish that you know that they do time and time time again it's not a trusted pair safe pair of hands and i think that's the problem with octopus it's almost like bond going through the motions oh we've got to have for me for me the problem with octopus is that they have got the formula they've proven the formula they've got a bond that works they've got a production team that works and it's conveyor belt bond and they they panic or they get mixed or they get they seem to just get lost in the detail and then this could happen then this could happen i really feel like the funny thing is we're comparing these two films together and i think it answers the question was eon distracted by mcclory and connery making never say and i think the answer is just look at octopus do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, I think they were distracted. I think 
arguably, maybe if Never Say Never Again hadn't been made, maybe Octopussy would have been not called Octopussy, would have been something different, would have been, and would have been more coherent because, as you said, the action sequences are great. John Glenn, thanks a lot. Mm. Um, there's so much other weird stuff in it that just doesn't work. There's some, but this doesn't mean they pick good bad guys. That it's just it's weird. It's it's like everything good and everything bad. And it's I think that's I think I put Octopussy as my least favorite Bond film. It's right at the bottom. Mm, and then just agreed. after it, uh, just after it is probably uh, what's the Craig one I didn't like? Is it Spectre? So, or, or quantum, or even though quantum does no, better quantum, with age. no, quantum. I, I like quantum. I Spect- like to Spectre's, watch... again, Spectre's just dull, it's just I, boring. I like to watch quantum after watching Casino and it works together as a two parter for me. Spectre uh, it, just has like, again, it's it's action, but it's just like it's a dull car chase. It's it's you know, it's this, it's, it's again, it's. It's a bit like I was saying to you, you and I it's were like chatting. playing gold, golden iron agent level at the end. Yeah. It's, well, it's, but yeah, it's like you and I were chatting about this in terms of like John Glenn. Yeah. He's a fantastic action director and it's a shame he didn't really do, I don't think he did much outside of the bonds. Um, but it is a bit like how the current mission impossible films are structured that they've got these amazing action scenes. And fortunately, obviously, Christopher McQuarrie is an Oscar-winning scriptwriter that can join the dots and move scenes around and and make it work. Whereas it seems like some of the Bond films, even more recent ones, they have yeah, the, it's the we've got amazing, we know how to do action, we've got the best teams in the world, and we've been doing it for years. But it's joining those dots and having that coherent script running all the way through. And an octopus is hundred percent a victim of that. It's like oh yeah, we've got. As I say, the that that opening sequence, it's almost like they've oh, that's a great idea that they've sat on for a while. All right, well, we'll save that for another film. And then it's like, oh, well, let's have these exotic bits. Let's have a, a apparently the elephant chase, the hunt where he's been hunted through the jungle. That was originally longer. Be in, yeah. I was originally gonna be in uh, Man with the Golden Gun. And it just feels like that whole bit with the hot air balloon, and then there's a another the bit on a balloon. And it just feels. I've like forgotten the ending of it, which shows this film me how is still much going. We had not watched this film. Yeah, this film is I, still I, going. <laughs> did you remember how Octopus ended? Because I didn't. Because we no. never watched the end. No. We never watched the end. We were just like, Cold Open is one of the best, and you've got that real John Glenn. The plane thing's amazing. The plane looks fast as anything. It comes out of a car, a horse box. It's brilliant. The takeoff. It's. Um, that whole thing, that whole thing is typical mm. Bond, would be repeated very much like there's tropes of Goldeneye, you know, it's like, um, but the the Roger on the train, it's like blip, fan on Roger's hair, back screen. Oh. <laughs> there's a lot of that towards the end of Octopus. He's like, and he's just like going, mm. and then I do this. Uh, <laughs> and then I look up. Yeah. So yeah, uh, pre-title sequence is great in Octopussy. And that's it. I'm, I'm out. That's pretty much it. Yeah. It's um it's diminishing returns. And I think, yeah, that's it. You know, listen, obviously you can go back and listen to our our love of a view to kill Charlie and I have, you know, we're not we're not Bond snobs. We do have odd choice in our Bond films, but I think a very important part of being a Bond fan, it's when you discover them, at what age and and what time like what period of time you discover them is very influential on on your 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 liking of Bond films. 
But what what I can say with some confidence, I would I would guess that a lot of our listeners loving blockbuster films of the eighties and nineties would be like us. They grew up in a household where there yeah. was maybe some Bond VHS if you were a serious fan, or they were just on a bloody bank holidays that we grew up in the eighties and nineties. Bond was on telly, and it was sometimes Roger, sometimes Sean, yeah. and then later, as you were a student, there was occasionally some Timothy. Um, and maybe some brown home, but uh, no, that was you. You'd left home by this point, but you know what I mean. I think there'll be a lot of people who went through this. There's a lot of comparison going on. There was some of these bonds that were seemed like period pieces to us, and some that were much more contemporary. But it's outlandish, as they say. The guys who make these films, it's fantasy. It's yeah. escapism. You know, it's like it's meant to be ludicrous. This is a secret agent, and everybody knows even what he freaking drinks. You know, it's like it's a joke. And every time he Bond. uses his name, oh yes, Mr. Bond, your usual, well, your usual room. Come, come, Mr. Bond. But it's like that. Come, 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 Mr. Bond. You love these films as much as I do. Uh, so yeah, I think just to sum it all up about, um, I think what Never Say Never Again demonstrates is Connery's the magic, vision. The mag- the magic that Connery brings. The magic that Connery mm. brings, and also you got to give some credit to McClory that he did get what what it would take to make. I think he probably doesn't get enough credit for what he probably... The, 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 for the cinematic James Bond, yeah. The ideas that he probably put in, that, that bled into what would become the cinematic version of James Bond. Because you've got to remember, this started with, hello, I'm Ian Fleming. These are my yeah. books. I want money. Um, there was a big jump. And I don't think enough credit goes to Kevin McClory for what he did to make that happen. But Never Say Never Again is all... It's, it's Connery's love letter to the character. Whereas Octopussy is is basically we've got a well-oiled machine. It's almost like that thing we could make a Bond film about anything. Well, actually, no, we yeah. can't because look at Octopussy. I think that's it. It's like they had everything because George, you know, when you read behind the scenes, what goes into the we haven't had a chance to talk about um, just one of the highlights that's come out of this book. Some kind of here, M- Morris Binder, the guy who does the oh uh, the op- opening titles. The opening credits, this guy, basically his job on every single Bond film was a bit getting, in a, getting in a room with a bunch of nudes and working out how to shoot the titles over their bodies without revealing a bit of bush or a bit of nipple. Um, Have you got the anec- to the, is the, the bit anecdotes, where Roger walks in? No, but one of the anecdotes involves, well, there was a shot and there was too much bush showing, so we didn't have, she didn't want to shave it off, so... I had to get some gel to polish down her front bottom and uh, and broccoli standing behind him going, are you sure we're paying for you to do this? <laughs> it's just like knelt in front of this nude woman. So, I mean, this, this is what goes into making these films is the fact that there's the soundtrack, there's the Monty Norman, there's the John Barry, there's the stunt of Vic Armstrong, there's, there's the script writing, there's the screenplay, there's the treatments, there's the getting the right actors, getting the right villains. And they had all of this when they went to make Octopussy. And I think they just pushed certain things too mm. far and it didn't work. But well, I think that's that's one thing I haven't commented on. We've 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 given shit to the the soundtrack for Never Say Never Again. And as much as I love a, a John Barry score and it's great, the the score in this is great. I hate all time high. I think it's one of my oh. favorite. Again, it's just like And it's oh. all through the film. It's yeah. all through the film, isn't it? And it's and it's not woven in like all time high. Nobody, nobody wants to make a song called Octopussy. Uh, but, uh, compared to For Your Eyes Only, 
which I really like. I think that that is so Bondian, so Shirley Bassey, sung by somebody else. What's she called? It's Sheena Easton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or is that... Uh... We get mixed up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Check it out. It's in the notes. But anyway, For Your Eyes Only is so Bond, whereas All Time High doesn't have the name in it, doesn't even have it as a lyric. Yeah. Like, if you're not going to go with a title, at least write it in as a lyric, you know? What rhymes with octopussy? Nothing. 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 Damn you, Fleming. <laughs> So I think we've covered both films in general. George has alluded to there being some could have, would have, should. I think we both have because, as you can tell, when it comes to making a Bond film, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of rewrites. There are a lot of sure things which are kicked out at the last minute. So we're at could have, would have, should have. Have we travelled by a circus train? Circus train. The one thing that we've got to talk about is that this bit of train line, and I didn't get it, from reading this book, I didn't get it. It's the same train line from Goldeneye. Yes. And you see it. When you know that, you'll see it. So next time you watch Octopussy, and I'll just caveat that with never watch Octopussy again. But if you ever <laughs> do watch Octopussy again, the bit at the end with the train, you will recognize it's the same train line tunnel from blah, Goldeneye. Blah, blah, Goldeneye that they had access to, which luckily the diameter of the rail lines is exactly the same as a Mercedes car. <laughs> you would have never imagined that. Follow that. Follow that train. Okay, Follow so coulda, woulda, shoulda. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, George. Okay, so we've got two films to talk about in Coulda, woulda, shoulda. And Coulda, woulda, shoulda is the people that were considered for the film, but for whatever reasons, never made it into the film. So I've got, we're talking about two different films. Let's do... Let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way. So Sean Connery was considered for, for Roger Moore's role. For Roger Moore's. <laughs> we can recast. We, we, we've brought him back before for Diamonds. Let's do it again. But uh, Roger no. Moore wasn't available for Never Say Never Again for some reason. Though you, you joke about that, there is, you must have read about this, that because Connery and Moore were friends and on good terms they uh, went to in, each it, other's premieres of these yeah, films right yeah I, th- I think so or they they were at least were on on good speaking terms and would would socialize with each other that connery had this idea or i don't know they they were chatting oh yes that one of them was going to turn up in one of the yeah, each that, other's films that at the end of never say never again it was going to be connery walking down piccadilly with with passenger and her saying uh, something about are you going to do this never again? And they brush past this guy walking down the street and turns around, and it's Roger going, "Never say never again." And I'm um, done. <laughs> and, and and that was and that's how it ended. But for whatever reason, I don't know if if, if Broccoli was like, "That's never going to happen." Um, <laughs> threatened to hold back Roger's pension. But um, yeah, so for Octopussy, I say we we talked about MGM were keen to well the the original uh, actually Eon were keen to start afresh, get a new actor in, and there's you go online, there's lots of screen tests, they're on the DVDs, but um, so they did the I think they always use the same scene, they use a scene from Russia with Love where he's yeah I've read I, I, I interrogating uh, the the Russian girl in bed. And they screen test interrogating her in bed. That that just sounds like an oxymoron. We're gonna yeah, do yeah. this interrogation, so just get into bed. <laughs> just get into bed. Um, so uh, people that got quite far down the line, there was James Brolin, fa- father of jo- Josh Brolin, and a bit of a a heartthrob in the late seventies, early eighties. But he was going to be doing it, and even more Adams because she was doing 
you know, playing the female, it, she'd already been cast, or I think she'd been brought in, and then they were like, oh, well, you're really good at this, let's just cast you in this. Because um, obviously, Maud Adams had previously been in Man with the Golden Gun as a different character. But yeah, James Brolin got quite far down the line, but I think it was like, Bond as an American? Is that a bit too much of a, a change? Because he wasn't putting on an accent. Yeah. Uh, Sam Neill, there's a screen test of Sam Neill, everyone's favourite softly spoken Kiwi. And I think Lewis Collins, who was in The Professionals, I think he was quite close, um, but lost out. And I think there was quite a few other screen tests, but I think they were the main three. But on the other side, for Never Say Never Again, obviously Connery was always in the picture, but it's more of a who, who else was behind the scenes. So I say Connery had choice of director, and you sung the song, but yeah, Connery wanted Richard Donner to to make Never Say Never Again. And Richard Donner looked at the script like, no, you're all right. It's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. I, I don't want to get involved. But apparently also, I'm, I'm just reading on, uh, they offered the title song to none other than Welsh warbler Bonnie Tyler, but she turned it down. <laughs> Wow, that says a lot. But they she would have been she would she would have been great for a Bond, Bond any Bond theme. song. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Total Eclipse of the Heart is a bit of a Bond anthem. Pretty much. I mean, anything would have been better than what we got. Um, so yes, <laughs> that's it uh, in terms of could have wished. I say I think there are plenty of other. There was loads of other people considered for Bond, but I know there's definitely those two screen tests for Sam Neill and uh, James Brolin. Interesting. So obviously we these episodes where we cover two films are always a bit difficult. A bit easier this time because we're comparing mm. Bond with Bond, the same character. But very interesting as to what goes on. I mean, got to say this, if it wasn't obvious, if you hadn't, whatever Marvel has done, which has been very impressive, the most successful franchise, the longest running franchise of all time, the longest running character is James Bond. Like him or hate him. Uh, we clearly love him want to be him but we've got a lot of love for these films uh just not a lot for octopussy but a lot for the production team and roger moore caveat i think we've caveated it enough it's like you can't hit it out of the park every time um moonraker has some great things in it it has um great villain Bond, great villainous we'll, we'll get around to it at some point but there are better roger films i think what was interesting about watching these two films is that it made me uh and we can't recommend we've got a big shout out to this book some kind of hero who's it written by george the full title uh for those of you searching for it some kind of hero the remarkable story of the james bond films is by aj chowdhury and matthew field so the great thing about this book is that it Basically, it's almost like if you wanted a making of book on, say, Dr. No, and it would talk about everything that we sort of covered, like how did Fleming turn them into movies, what was going on in making the movie, how did the movie come together, the script, everything, but for every single Bond film. So I I, I got I spent some time with this book, and then I looked in my, unfortunately, yes, I do use a Kindle. I don't read the, the real books out there. And it said, you're at 12%. I was like, wow, this is a big book. But yes, there's a lot of Bond films. So it goes through every single Bond film, and it's got footage so i should say footage it's got quotes from everybody involved in the in the film very exhaustive yeah they're, they've they've really i think it's it is a must-have it's like an uh, encyclopedia 
Yeah, well, Almost. that's it's funny because I'm looking up uh, my my film book collection where I'm sat, and we've got the, the the classic James Bond encyclopedia that I've had for 25 years. I think it, it ends on the world is not enough, whatever, which is great, but it's a very much a top line encyclopedia of all the films. Whereas this film, um, some kind of hero, goes into yeah, as you say, book. Charlie, it goes it goes into like sorry. Sorry, did I say film? Yeah, you're obsessed. Whereas this book goes into, uh, yeah, the 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 level of detail about the the early days of them trying to get the you know the Bond scripts that that first film out the gate, um, about what's going on behind the scenes with you know the the Eon guys with Broccoli and Saltzman, um, and yeah, I say it, it goes right all the way through. It's it's a, a must have book for any any fan if you love film books as well it's just a great sort of history um but the other book that we mentioned is the battle for bond by robert sellers which is again a fascinating read for for bond fans but yeah i would say if you're going to pick one go for some kind of hero because that covers all of them um but the battle for bond is also a brilliant book as well The the battle for bond i remember but it's just really intriguing it's just it's crazy what went on it doesn't like a great it's a great court case and it doesn't, drama. and it doesn't paint Ian Fleming in a very good light. Um, what are you talking about, <laughs> boy? I just want more money, and I'm just going to take all credit for it. These ideas all came from my ideas, so essentially they're my ideas. Um, no, so yeah, a great book. Highly recommend it. And yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I've gone through. I haven't even finished it yet. It's quite a meaty book. I'm up to the world is not enough. And it's interesting to hear Bronholm, who was just so happy, as you heard when we covered Goldeneye about how he missed his chance to be Bond and then he finally got it. You could tell he's just so happy to be playing the role. So, yeah, highly recommend that. Uh, George, anything else? What else do you want to say? We've talked about Octopussy. We've talked about Never Say Never Again. We watched Never Say Never Again a lot when we were younger because I know that film back to back. No, we're, we're always plugging it. We're always dropping it. But yes, we are we are diehard Bond fans and we have done some Bond specials on our Patreon channel. So if you love Bond as much as we do, um, then yeah. 60 year anniversary this year, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth um, checking out. Maybe it was um, last year. I think it. I think it was last year. But Call it's yourself a fan. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely worth checking out if you are interested in bond um and you want to hear charlie and i talk more about bond uh subscribing to our patreon even just to get your fill and then and then cancel that subscription but um we will as charlie you know keeps threatening we will get around to doing other bond films we've covered two in one go in this one but yes we will keep going back we will probably we'll probably do one a year <laughs> if if not more Time for an Arnie, time for a Bond. We're going to get, we hit our stride. A bit of Sly. Haven't done Van Damme for a while. The thing is, George, we're getting pretty low down on the Van Damme. Um, <laughs> to, be fair, to be fair, they, were, they, didn't, they didn't really hit There was no high. peak. No, have we done, no peak. Have we done, which one haven't we done yet? This we haven't done Kickboxer. We've done we haven't done Kickboxer. It's coming. Um, we haven't done AWOL either. We haven't done Blood, Bloodsport. Can you move like this? Can you move like Can this? Move? Uh, we have no, done Bloodsport. Well, no, 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 that's that's kickboxing. Can, yeah, kid, can you move like me? That's that's all oh, right. That's... No, we haven't done kickboxing. We have done blood sport. Yeah, we have. Yeah, 
Brick, don't hit back. I don't know why we, we've seeked into Van Damme territory. <laughs> what, do, what, what do people have to look forward to apart from guaranteed Arnie and JCVD? On well, I, I, I am starting to pull together the schedule for 2024. So if you do have any film suggestions you want Charlie and I to cover, please do get in touch because I will take them because otherwise we will just keep doing arnie stallone and jcvd but i will i will love them i will take them under advisement um but yes uh what we've got coming up um i'm just trying to think uh we've got some john carpenter coming up later in the year um i can't remember what we're doing next month but i'm sure it's going to be very exciting this has been Octopussy versus Never Say Never Again. I think I just want to summarise it as Never Say Octopussy Again. Uh, anything else you want to add, George? Uh, on the list, I've got Last Boy Scouts. Do you fancy chatting about that next month? Absolutely. We, we, I think we should also get some insight from Andy about that as well, because it's Bruce Willis, and we know he loves Brucey as much as we do. Okay, well, well, we'll try and do that. So, yes, uh, Last Boy Scout is next on the horizon, but we've got John John Carpenter special in October, uh, and then Kill Bill, and then Christmas. Well, it's going to be a 1980s Christmas film. Make make of that what you will. Excellent. So check us out on all the channels. We are at retroramble.blog. I've been Charlie McGee. I've been George McGee, I guess. <laughs> These dice are loaded... Uh, Retro Ramble will return possibly with Roger Moore more Roger Moore Uh, but we hope you've enjoyed this episode Uh, let us know in the comments if you haven't because occasionally we do read them so it's bye bye from me and it's bye bye from me we'll see you next time bye 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 bye